0: with Dr. Frank Turek, is atheism dead? That is the subject of a brand new book by my friend, the New York Times best-selling author of Bonhoeffer, Amazing Grace, Luther, Miracles, and like six thousand other books. The great Eric Metaxas. He's with me. We're going to jump right into it. Eric, how are you?
1: I'm great. You know I love talking to you, especially about this kind of a subject, so thank you for
0: having me. Hey, Eric, uh, I've been through this book, and it is, like all your books, really meaty. And you have so much great detail in how people have discovered certain archaeological discoveries or scientific discoveries that point to God— how on earth did you pull all this together in your normally witty writing style? How did this happen? How long did yeah, you work on of, it? I got a lot of staff. You know what I'm saying? I just say get <laughs> it done
1: and put my name on it. Don't embarrass me. No, in all seriousness, when I write a book, I never have help. The only time I had ever had any help was with my book Seven Men and Seven Women. But every other book, every syllable, every piece of research, I have to do it myself. I don't know why. I wish I could get help, but on this book, I have to say, you know, you know, and I know that y- you don't start writing something when you start writing something. I mean, I've been reading books on apologetics and or biblical archaeology and science for years, but something happened uh, in the last few years that made me realize I had to write this this book. That the evidence has come in on a level that nobody knows. Unless you're an apologist like Frank Turek, or unless you're somebody who follows an apologist like Frank Turek, you haven't heard of any of this stuff. Most believers, certainly most non-believers, they do not have any idea that science is pointing to God. They can't even imagine that that's possible. Well, I'm here to tell you, get ready for a paradigm shift. God is alive in our time. He has a sense of humor, a sense of irony, and he's chosen to reveal some things when we were sure it wasn't even possible they could be revealed ever. Well, here they are. So I said, I gotta put it in a book and I have to write it in a way as you're referencing that people can read, that people who maybe aren't even that interested in apologetics, they will find it interesting. And I I have to say, I don't work to make it interesting. Some of these stories are very funny, very weird and, and, and interesting stories. And, and I think that that's kind of just what I do instinctively. I like to tell these stories, and I think that you, you can't help but be fascinated when you read the characters involved. I mean, this is not just facts. These are people, you know, sinners, crazy people, brilliant people. And when you, when you read about what they did, it makes the discovery much more interesting in and of itself.
0: Well, there's so much covered in here, Eric, and you've done it remarkably well, as usual. You're starting with the beginning. We might as well just start right there. In the beginning, there was a big bang. That's chapter one. And that's a fascinating story in itself. Uh, why don't you just get into how did people yeah. discover that there really was a beginning to the universe? Because science for centuries thought that the universe was eternal. And then boom, in the last century, everything turns around. Well, again, everything to me
1: in this book is funny. The, the truth can be very funny. At how how people are so sure of something and then boom, it flips and everybody's Mm -hmm. embarrassed, running for cover. (laughs) Um, The story of the first part of the book is science. So I deal with the, with the, with the big bang, with the fine tuned universe. And then with the James tour stuff, what's called abiogenesis, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, which is staggering. Insane stuff. We got to get into yeah. James Tour. Oh, we got to get, get into, into it. But, but look, and, let, let's start then, with the Big Bang. No, I do. And then and, yeah. then and then and then of course I deal with 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 archaeology and all the stuff. Yeah. But the reason I wrote the book really is because we know that in 1966 there was a Time magazine article that said, "Is God dead?" Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like the paradigm of the culture enters America's living rooms on time magazine says, is God dead? And it's almost like all the evidence is pointing to the idea that there's no God, blah, 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 blah. Well, since then, the evidence has continued to shift dramatically, dramatically, dramatically. But because we thought we answered the question, we ignored the evidence. But the one thing that nobody today really thinks of as controversial anymore is the big bang. And as I looked into this, and into how did we ever get to a place where everybody acts like science disproves God? That took me to the story of the Big Bang. And it really boils down to this. You could read Isaac Newton, okay? In the 17th century, he knew the universe had been created. Maybe the greatest scientist who ever lived knew this. How did he know Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. He didn't have a telescope to look at it. He knew it because it's what the scripture said. He was a profound Christian and what i find funny it's only with the with the rise of modern science and really when when the when the god is dead idea comes in i think it's roughly when darwin says in 1859 hey we figured out a way that the, all the creatures and all life you know emerged uh naturalistically through random mutation, so we don't need god okay mm-hmm. so that kind of creates this theme so that now The physicists and stuff buy into this that, oh, yeah, science stands against God and religion. So to me, the story of the Big Bang, the reason one of the reasons it's hilarious (laughs) is that maybe the first person who discovered the Big Bang is Albert Einstein. In 1911, his equations tell him that the universe is expanding. And of course, he goes, wait a minute, Uh, according to the science of the last 50 years, uh, you know, There's no God. Uh, God uh, didn't create the universe. The universe was always here. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. So my equations are freaking me out. They're telling me the universe is expanding, which means it expanded from a point, which means it had a beginning, which means it was created. That smacks of religion. And even though we think of Albert Einstein as the most secure, great scientist in history, you find out, no, he was an insecure human being who bought in to the secular paradigm of his day, 1911 and 1915. So he decides, I'm gonna hide this evidence. He creates this thing, the cosmological constant, this fudge factor. He says, I don't want anybody to notice that while I'm doing science, I bump into something that looks like the universe was created. That's just not done in these circles, so I'm gonna hide it. So then, other scientists, like the the Russian Jew, Friedman, and the Belgian Catholic priest, uh, Lemaitre, And then the American Edwin Hubble, they all say, no, 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 it's true. The universe is expanding, Einstein. Your equations are very clear. Uh, uh, Hubble observes it through the telescope. So Einstein has to eat crow. In 1929, he says, this cosmological constant fudge factor that created to hide this, it was the greatest blunder of my life. So that, to me is the first story in the whole book really, that proves that people go with whatever everybody's saying, including Einstein. If everybody says there's no God, if everybody says science is at war with God, even Einstein is insecure enough that he goes with the flow. Does he look at the facts and the evidence? No, he's afraid to. So the story of the big bang, it's comedy because it starts with Einstein, and then you still get people after these three people that I mentioned and others say, oh, yes, it looks it certainly looks like the Big Bang happened. It looks like the universe was created out of nothing. You still get people like Fred Hoyle and others who are so bothered by this idea, which implies religion, implies God and they're so bothered by it that they keep trying to prove the steady state universe. And then, of course, in 1964, there's a you know, it's, it's a whole story, but it basically finally is proved. Uh, And then in 1990-something, the Kobe background radiation proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But the story to me is how you have people who are really smart, who have bought into a secular narrative, and they
0: cannot face the actual science. That's called irony. And we're going to talk a lot more with my guest today, Eric Metaxas. His brand new fabulous book is called Is Atheism Dead? That's what we're talking about. You can read about these stories in this book, Is Atheism Dead? You're going to want to pick it up much more with Eric right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network back in two. welcome back to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with frank turek on the american family radio network if you're low on the fm dial looking for national public radio go no further we're actually going to tell you the truth here that's our intent anyway you will not hear the question is atheism dead on npr but you will hear it here it's my friend eric eric metaxas with his brand new book is atheism dead and as eric was telling us the story of the big bang he quotes one of my favorite authors in his book His atheism dead. Robert Jastrow wrote a fabulous book called God and the Astronomers. Here's how he ends the book. After going through all the evidence that suddenly the universe appears to have had a beginning, here's what Jastrow says. He says, and by the way, he was an agnostic, He says for the the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. That's the end of chapter one of Eric's brand new book, Is Atheism Dead? So Eric... It's been discovered, at least it seems now, from a scientific perspective and also a philosophical perspective, that the universe had a beginning, that space, time, and matter had a beginning. But how does this point to God? Couldn't there be some other cause for the universe? Well,
1: first of all, we have to say there's a lot of information in the book, and and some things don't prove God. They just Mm -hmm. kind of point to God. Uh, Other things, the fine-tuned universe uh, and abiogenesis, the second and third parts of my science uh, portion, are more pointing to God. But what I'm saying is that the atheists and the agnostics prove that the big bang very strongly implies a creator because of how disturbed they were by it. I mean, they were freaked out Mm -hmm. because think about it, science by pointing to a moment when the universe comes into being, basically the universe is matter, okay? matter and energy. So matter is where you get the word material, right? So they're saying at some point, matter didn't exist. That's Mm -hmm. what science is telling us. Science, which tells us all about matter, is now telling us there was a moment where matter or energy didn't didn't exist. That doesn't compute. That's, That's very troublesome. It's pointing to a door that says science not permitted. That's freaking us out. Science is pointing to a door that says no science allowed. There's a moment when the laws of physics didn't exist, when the law It's such a conundrum, but that's just the opening strains of the symphony. You know, then you get to the fine-tuned mm-hmm. universe. And I remember I was reading books by Hugh Ross like in 1990, 1991 and he, you know, opened my eyes to the concept of the fine-tuned universe that The more we know from science, again, think of the irony scientists who are atheists have said, science is pushing God out of the picture, God of the gaps, before you know it, he'll be gone because science learns more and more. But at some creepy point, the script gets flipped and science starts pointing to God. And the fine tuned universe is the exact example that science got better and better and better at seeing things that it couldn't see before. And that we saw on the molecular level, on the macro level, that the way things are couldn't have just emerged randomly, the size of the Earth. If it was a tiny bit bigger, there's no life. If it was a tiny bit smaller, no life. You think, well, that's a nice coincidence, isn't it? And then you find out that everywhere you look, in the universe, on this planet, uh, on the, the cellular level, everything seems to be so perfectly calibrated that if you believe in random occurrence that that's how we all got here, you start getting a creepy feeling that it doesn't seem like, I mean, it's one thing to flip a coin three times and it comes up heads three times. If you do it 30 times, something is wrong. If it happens 300 times, you're heading for the exits because there's a ghost and something is going on. When they use science to examine the natural universe, the more they found was Pointing to God, the levels of calibration. I mean, I have a chapter, it gets really crazy. I talk about water. Water, the thing that we all take for granted. What's the big deal? Water, water. Water, when you look at it with the eyes of a, of a real chemist, is an outrageous creation. It's a confection. It doesn't make sense. It's like it was invented by a God who wanted to create something that would do all these things, and he did it. Uh, water floats when it freezes. Most uh, liquids, when, when uh, when they become a solid, they get more dense and they sink, but not water. Water, and this is even creepier, water goes, as it gets colder and colder, it does get denser and denser as predicted. And then when it hits 39 degrees Fahrenheit, it flips and it starts getting, as it gets colder, less and less dense. When it hits 32 and freezes, it is 9% less dense than the liquid, so it floats. Totally bizarre, but if it weren't for that, there's no life on Earth. Scientists will tell you that you know because uh, of ice freezing at the top, uh, rather than sinking to the bottom, you don't get this runaway freezing effect and that would kill everything. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I talk about erosion, there's stuff that I discovered, I just like, I had to walk away from my computer and say, Lord, I cannot believe that science is leading us to greater and greater awe of you and what you've done. We had we knew you were amazing. We had no idea how amazing. So the discovery of all these things has led even people like you know Christopher Hitchens to say that the number one argument for God is this fine-tuned universe. We can't take it lightly. Well, if you talk to most atheists about the fine-tuned universe, they say, "Oh, that's been disproved. It's stupid." not according to Christopher Hitchens. And he said, most of my colleagues would agree. So it, it's the biggest problem. And again, the irony is that the more science discovers, the worse the problem gets. That's right. For, for them, the for person who says there's no, there's no God. So I find it hilarious in a way. It's so they come up with crazy
0: things like the multiverse oh, theory, yeah. whatever, which is, which is so it's just silly. You're listening to Frank Turek, and Eric Metaxas, my guest, his new book, Is Atheism Dead? And I'm looking at page 65 of the book right now, Eric, where you, you use an illustration that you, Ross, uses. So many of these constants about our universe are so fine-tuned, many of them one in 10 to the 40th precision, which is which is a one with 40 zeros following it. That's one chance in one with 40 zeros following, and use this illustration of dimes. Can you recall this illustration? Oh, this is
1: so sick. <laughs> this, is so, this is like me being like a, a comedy idiot in the middle of this important book. Hugh Ross says that if you want to understand how rare one in 40 to the whatever power it is, if you want to know how rare that is, he's like, imagine covering the continent of North America with dimes. Just try to imagine that mm-hmm. for a second, right? He says, well, then... Uh, keep doing it until the dimes rise to, what is it? 240. 240,000 miles, which would be all the that's, way to the moon. So they're bumping <laughs> up to the moon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 240,000 miles high. I mean, this it, it, is this is lunacy. And then he says, yeah. And by the way, do it like a, like a, like what? A thousand more times? A billion times.
0: Like a bil- We need You need a billion of these continents. Oh, a billion
1: continents. covered yeah, right. with that. And he says, someplace in those billion continents, billion, covered with dimes to the height of the moon, there's one red dime. Find the dime. That's what we're talking about. By I chance. Mean, it's Don't blindfolded. Find the dime. <laughs> it's, but the yeah. thing is, again, we got to say, this is what science is saying. This mm-hmm. is not what Christians are saying. This is what science is talking about. Many agnostics, they, they acknowledge this. This is profoundly troubling. But- we need to be familiar with these arguments. Some of them are complicated. Some of them are very simple. We need to understand that the facts are dramatically on the side of God. And when I say dramatically, even that is is a little bit uh, you know shy. I mean it's open and shut. You can no longer have this many facts and this level of fact and evidence and say, well, we're not sure. We are sure. A creator, created this. Now, if you want to argue about who that creator is, that's another conversation, but Mm -hmm. you can't really be logically, or you can't be intellectually honest and say that based on everything we know, we don't know if there's a creator. We do know. Maybe some people don't want to know, or they've got problems with it, but we need to know that science has taken us to this point and that's just science. And we're just talking about one element in science, which is the fine tuned universe. But I realize that I've grown up in a secular culture that acts like what we believe is sort of crazy or you can't prove it. That has dramatically changed over the decades. And it's about time we put it out there and called the bet and said, folks, I dare you to look at this. I dare you to be honest about this, because I think you're going to You're not going to be an atheist. You may say I'm an agnostic. That's fine. Let's have a conversation. But atheism to me becomes intellectually untenable unless you're just angry and you just don't want to let go of that term for some reason. But I don't know why you'd want to do
0: that. So, Eric, you look in the book, Is Atheism Dead? You look at the Big Bang. You look at the fine-tuning of the universe. You also look at the fact that our, our planet appears to be designed. I want to dive into a little bit of the idea of the fact that Somehow, life came from non-life. It had to happen somehow. Either it this was is by intelligence yeah, this this or not. This is literally not. why I wrote the book. Because, thi- because of that,
1: That's I right. said no one ever talks about that. When, yeah. I, when I met James Tour. he's the scientist that I write about. He's a solid believer, amazing man, probably the top nanoscientist on planet Earth. I mean, this is like a guy who he creates complex molecules
0: in the lab. It's 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 loony stuff. OK, hey, hey, let me let me let me say something about him, because you write about him in here. Yeah. And, and this is uh, on page uh, ninety nine. Again, we're talking about to Eric Metaxas. His book is Atheism Dead uh, in, tw- in 2013. James Torr, who teaches at Rice University, R&;D magazine named him top scientist of the year. He holds joint appointments in the departments of chemistry, computer science, material science, and nanoengineering. And this is one guy in one school and you say he has he has more than 700 research publications and over 140 patents. this is, this is the guy that Eric, you interviewed. No, he's- for, scary. For, yeah. For, for the beginning of life, what did you find? And we're, we're, we're well, going to carry this through the break, but go ahead. It, what, it's what not really find?
1: that I, that I interviewed him. It's first that I met him. I mean, uh-huh. that's what I'm saying. It's like, I there's a guy I met in Albuquerque who got, got me into the archeological side of this. I couldn't believe what I heard from this guy. Yeah. And then I meet Jim tour and he starts talking about this, uh, the, the, the idea of life coming from non-life. And I thought, wait a minute. Nobody ever talks about that. We always talk about evolution. Do we believe in evolution? What happens? How does life go from from the simplest life to complex life? But nobody ever talks about the big question, the bigger question. Mm -hmm. How do you go from non-life? There's no life on Earth. There's not a cell. And then suddenly, four billion years ago, bing, there's cellular life. How did that happen? And the answer is hilarious. Well, we're going to get into the hilarious answer.
0: Very funny. (laughs) It's coming right after this break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. Uh, My guest, Eric Metaxas, New York Times bestselling author. His brand new book just came out October 19th. It's called Is Atheism Dead? It covers so much great information in a narrative format, story-like. You're not going to want to miss it. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be up in Maryville, Missouri, this coming Wednesday night, November 3rd at Northwest Missouri State University. We'll be doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. If you're anywhere near that area, it's just north of Kansas City, about an hour. Hope to see you there. It's open to the public. Go to our website, crossexamine.org. Click on Events. You'll see Frank Turek Calendar. That's Northwest Missouri State University. University in Maryville, Missouri. And then next week on Sunday, I'll be at Mission City Church in Largo, Florida. Mission City Church, Largo, Florida. Keep an eye on our website. Also going to Bangor, Maine the weekend after that. So hope to see you there. Eric, by the way, you get out and speak quite a bit too. What, What do you got coming up? My goodness, I am in uh, Carlsbad, California right now. Okay. Uh,
1: I'm speaking up in Thousand Oaks uh, this weekend. I'm going, I'm really going everywhere. The book, I'm very excited about this book and I'm going all across the country. I I should say, please go to my website. It's just my name, ericmetaxas.com and it lists all the places and we're adding dates uh, almost daily, uh, but I'm getting all over the country. I'm going to Montana I'm going to Atlanta.
0: Uh, I'm really going to, I'm going to Wichita, and, Kansas. And, and how, how are you doing all this with, and doing a daily radio show? How's that happening? Radio show? What are you talking about? Oh, Come on, you're doing radio, man. Come well, on. Yeah. What's, what's happening? Well, I can, do,
1: I can do radio on the road. And right. when I go home, I just do extra radio when I get back to New York. So <laughs> okay. yeah, it's a, it's a very busy time. But it's exciting, Frank, because you know that we live in a world that they don't know a lot of this stuff. A lot of Christians don't know this stuff. And I said, I want to write a book that you could give to a non-believer, it's not trying to convince them very hard. It just says, hey, isn't this fascinating? And guess mm. what? It's very fascinating and it's more fascinating because why haven't you read this? Why haven't you seen this in newspapers, and magazines and stuff? And and I think that, you know, I'm quoting brilliant scientists, I'm quoting uh, people that don't share our faith in many cases and they're corroborating what I say. So. It's kind of time for a paradigm shift. So I think instead of asking is God dead, we're we're going to be asking is atheism dead? It doesn't it don't doesn't seem intellectually tenable at this point. Once you know what's in this book, we were just talking about James Tour, right? Yeah. Go ahead. I, when I bumped into this guy, I said, "This guy's so smart, it's freak. It's it's a wonder he could talk." You know, people <laughs> that smart, right? But he's very normal, and he starts talking to me about the question of. Life out of non life. And I thought to myself, I, ne- I never hear anybody talk about this. What's the last time I talked about this? Maybe it was like in eighth grade, it was on a test. And somebody said, Oh, yeah, in 1952, uh, Miller and Urey at the University of Chicago, they did some experiment. They ran electricity through some, what they thought was in the prebiotic soup, some, some whatever, a couple of elements or whatever. And Shazam, they got amino acids. And they said, Wow, we're on our way. Next thing you know, next stop life itself, right? Well, you know, that's like figuring out how to create some plastic and saying, man, in in, in, in a week, we're going to have a flat screen TV. That's just details. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. What they discovered, amino acids, it, what they made is so far from the simplest life, but they had confidence in 1952, 53. So they put it in all the textbooks, like science, scientists are working on this. They're working on this only a matter of time. Well, 70 years have passed, seven decades have passed. And James Tour says that the more, it's the same old story that I keep talking about, the more science discovers about this issue, the more they know that they know absolutely nothing. Life is so much more complex than they thought of in 1952. When you look at a cell, when you start talking about DNA coding, even when you just look at the membrane of a cell and what a cell does, the simplest form of life, you cannot get simpler, okay? Life in single cell form or a bacterium, it's the simplest life and yet it is itself so complex that the idea that it could have just sloshed together somehow, because remember, this is even before you get to talk about evolution, You can't have evolution without natural selection in life. So we are talking about total randomness, Mm -hmm. no mutations, no, no breeding, no self-selection genes. We are talking about stuff that's dead, that's non-life coming together to make life. The more we know about life, the more we know about science, the more we've discovered that ain't happening. But they keep fudging it. If you ask, like, you know, Dawkins says, oh, we're working on that one. Yeah, you're working on that. You know, the, the problem is it's hard to be the one to raise your hand and to say, hey, by the way, we've worked on this for seven decades. And not only are we not closer to the answer, we are much, 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 much farther away from the answer. In fact, we're on the other side of the universe. We know that we're not, we, we haven't made any progress. The target has gone farther and farther away. The more we work on it. And so the question that you'd ask every scientist, the most basic question, like, hey, you say life emerged in single cell form four billion years ago, great, how did that happen? They have no idea, but who's gonna admit it? Well, it's time that we talked about it, we call the bet, what do you got? James Tour is talking about it all day long, and he knows more about this stuff than anybody, because as I said, as you said, he's a, you know, Multiple credentialed super genius uh, academic in in these fields, and he says you can't you can't fool me. I know, I, so, I can explain to you what they're trying to do, and they can't even begin to begin to begin to get there. And it's been seven decades. Here's what so, he says. Here's what he says. He there.
0: In your book, again, the book is called "Is uh, Is Atheism Dead?" You're quoting Tor here. You say, and he's he's speaking about life coming from non-life without intelligence. Here's what he says. Remember, this guy is is unbelievably credentials he said he said it can it cannot ever happen they're fudging it but i know they're fudging it and most people uh, and even most scientists don't know enough to argue with them, but I do. And I'm calling them out on it. I'm fed up. We should defund all further research in this direction because we now know for sure that it's like looking for a pot of the gold at the end of a rainbow. It's demonstrably a fool's errand, And now it's a gigantic waste of money that should be put to better use. That's James Torr. You know, this is why I love him because yeah, he's, he's really pull any funny. Even, yeah. even when
1: he's an unintentionally funny because he knows, it, it, it's like, he know, he's not saying like, hey, this is my opinion. He knows, That's right. he knows cold that this is exactly, they're fudging it, and he knows they're fudging it, and he's had it. Because oh, but er, millions er, like, you, of dollars are being spent on nothing.
0: you got a section in here, this is on page 105, actually, so, sorry. Again, the book's called, Is Atheism Dead?, that the the, the headline is titled time is the enemy because you always hear people say, Oh, give it enough time, give it enough time that non lifes going to come from or life's going to come from non-life without intelligence. Why is that demonstrably false according to Tor? Well, it is demonstrably false for two reasons. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, If the earth or the universe had existed forever and ever and ever and ever, this still wouldn't have happened, but Mm -hmm. people could claim that, well, it might've happened given enough time, given infinite time but now we know there is no infinite time. Okay. Number one, but number two, he says, all right, let's say you have infinite time. He says that the moment you get like two of these pieces to come together, if you're in a lab trying to create a molecule or trying to do something, if you don't grab that thing that just happened and like, you know, put it in a freezer or, or do something to it, it deteriorates in no time. So, hmm. The idea that you're gonna get this one piece to come together, you, you you only need a billion of them, by the way, but you get one piece to come together. By the time you get to the second piece, the first piece is gone. And he gives it you know, in detail, but he knows the specifics of why this doesn't work. And you know, I asked him, I said, Jim, you haven't written a book about this? No, I said, for crying out loud, this is so exciting. I'm gonna put it in my book. And it's because of him that I wrote this book. I said, this is gonna be front and center along with the discovery of biblical Sodom, something other crazy story that nobody's heard about. And then I said, I'm gonna write about all this other stuff too, because it is about time we understood where the facts are. it's not 1966, it's not 1911. We've come to a place where we know that science and the facts point to God. You wanna argue the details, fine, but let's no longer pretend science is the enemy of faith.
0: You know, our mutual friend, John Lennox, and I know you quote John in here, uh, puts it this way. A lot of people were saying, oh, science is going to close the gaps. Lennox says the gaps are getting wider. What are you talking about? The more we investigate this stuff, the more we realize there's no natural way to get from A to B. There's no natural way to get from non-living chemicals to living chemicals without intelligence. There's got to be an intelligence out there that did this. Now, there's so much science in the book, Eric, but I want to talk a little bit about archeology, span because you have some real fun archeological discoveries in here. And uh, let me just start with the Hittites. Why are they such a big deal? Because <laughs> they- I'm telling you, I,
1: I the one thing I know I can do is I could tell stories. And what, what I find is I've read a lot of books on apologetics and they give you facts, right? but they don't tell you the stories. I discovered these stories. I said, I gotta tell the stories. The stories are hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have skeptics, Bible skeptics, you know, in the 19th century saying, eh, we don't think, uh, the Bible is true. And look, here's an example, the Hittites. You got the Amalekites, you got the Jebusites, you got all these, and, and we found them in, in the writers of antiquity, they've mentioned them, or, or we found some archeological evidence of the Amalekites or thing. but there's no evidence of the Hittites. Not one ancient writer ever wrote about them. It's total baloney and it's all over the Bible. We know the Bible. They're just making this up.
0: Yeah, and Uriah the Hittite,
1: he was, he was Bathsheba's husband. Bathsheba, so the yeah. most famous Hittite was, yeah. was uh, Uriah the Hittite. But the Hittites go all the way back to Abraham. They're all through the Old Testament. It's amazing. And over the course of a very convoluted, crazy story, you see the pieces come together, different people traveling across the Holy Land before anybody's doing any archaeology. This is like comedy, they're just wandering around finding things, hieroglyphics that that don't make any sense. And by the end of the 19th century, they put all the pieces together and they go, holy guacamole, we've discovered the empire Mm. of the Hittites. It was one of the greatest empires in history. No one knew about it. And how do we know about it? How did we find it? The Bible the Bible led us on the journey to discover this people that all of antiquity and you know, it's all been destroyed, nobody knows, so we put these pieces together and the Bible once again is vindicated, but it happens over and over and over that archeology, span just like science, it does the opposite of what you'd expect if you have a secular world view. It points over and over to the Bible as history, it's 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 again I find it deliciously funny it's ironic people need to know this and I try to write in a way for for the layman you know you don't need to be a brainiac that this is if you're a reader and you're interested in stuff uh you know i I hope I presented it that way because this is fun but it's also true
0: by the way Eric did you do an audio version of this book? Yes, I did. You did. Okay, good. Because uh, we've got your audio version for uh, Luther, which we love. We're talking Eric Metaxas. His new book is Is Atheism Dead? You can get the hard copy. You can get the Kindle. You can also get the audiobook. And Eric tells a great story about all these discoveries, both discoveries in science, discoveries in archaeology. We're going to talk more archaeology when we come back with our final segment with Eric Metaxas. Don't go anywhere. I'm Frank Turk. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be An Atheist on the American Family Radio Network back in two. Is Atheism Dead? Well, if you read Eric Matax's new book by the same name, Is Atheism Dead, I think you'll probably come to the conclusion, yep, there's more out there than just nothing. That's for sure. <laughs> and uh, some of the evidence we've been talking about is evidence from science. We've talked a little bit about the Big Bang, the uh, the creation of the universe from nothing, We've also talked a little bit about the fine-tuning of the universe. And now we've gotten into a little bit of archaeology, which Eric has several archaeological discoveries in here. Let's talk about the Black Obelisk. I thought that was fascinating, Eric. They discovered this. I've seen this thing in the British Museum, by the way. The Black Obelisk discovered in, in Iraq. How long ago and, and what's the significance of this thing?
1: Well, now, I this is one of these things where you write a book and am I going to remember all the details? The bottom line is that it's discovered before archaeology really exists. This is just, you know, the colonial empires, you know, uh, the, the the Germans, the Dutch, the English, the French, they've all they've all kind of discovered, like, hey, we can roam across the Holy Land, we can roam across the Middle East, and we can discover all this cool stuff. Wow. And uh, while they're there, they discover uh, an obelisk, which is just a, you know, like a military steel, a a granite uh, thing. I don't know how tall this one is, maybe six feet tall or something. Mm -hmm. And it's in the shape of a ziggurat, meaning it's kind of stepped down. It's not smooth. Uh, It's it's uh, very dark. And they they see, I guess this was 1848 or 49 that they discovered or maybe 1846 Sir Henry Austin Laird Laird. And, but they don't know what it is. And, mm-hmm. but it seems very interesting. So uh, they put it, I even write about how hard it was to get stuff. You know, you, you, there was no
0: FedEx. Uh, yeah, the, no, it was amazing. 20, you said they had to, they put it on like the Tigris river. It went 300 oh, miles down into the they, Persian they, Gulf. I and, mean, try to imagine they yeah. find this thing,
1: right? Yeah. And you think, well, how do you get it? Oh, you put it on a plane and you fly to London. <laughs> no, no. You now have to take it by ox carts. Uh, to the bank of the river. Then you get it on a barge. Then you got to go, if you ever look on a map of the Tigris and Euphrates, river, I mean, they are the most winding things you've ever seen. And it's hundreds of miles along this river. And then finally it gets to, I forget what the Gulf is there. Persian Gulf. It gets to the Persian Gulf. It gets to the, 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 Persian, Gulf. Get okay. to the Persian Gulf. And now they got to go in the wrong direction. They got to go east toward India, right? Or to Baghdad, wherever it is. India, yeah, that's, Around- that's where that's f- where it goes first. Yeah, and there's a guy that happens to be there who's kind of an expert on reading this. I, I don't know if it was cuneiform or whatever it was, but even that was in its infancy. Nobody had deciphered cuneiform, Assyrian cuneiform, whatever. So he takes his best crack at it and sends a report to the British Museum. The report gets to the British Museum way before. This obelisk ever gets there. The obelisk now has to travel down around Africa and up. I mean, it's crazy. It takes years. So they put it in the British Museum, and whatever king it's is still mentioned there. on there, the, the <laughs> guy who looked at it when it was, I think it was in Baghdad. Uh, he, he says it's it's the king it mentions is not significant. We've never, I never heard of this king, whatever. So it's sitting in the British Museum. And the Victorian crowds are goggling at this thing. It's like a moonstone. comes from the other side of the universe. And a clergyman, an Irish clergyman, who happens to be studying this language, wanders into the museum by himself amidst the crowds and starts looking at this thing. And this is like 1850 or 51. So it's been there Mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And he comes on a line and he... You can imagine the moment when he realizes nobody has figured this out, but I'm standing here now and I, I know what it says and it's referring to uh, a king of Israel. It's referring to whatever nobody, nobody has picked up on this until now. And so suddenly, once this information gets disseminated, they discover this is the first example in history of something discovered in the sands of the Holy land in the, in the middle of nowhere that corroborates something mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures. This is like electricity. This is unbelievable. The world of the scriptures, which they thought was hermetically sealed unto itself. The skeptic said it has no bearing on reality, right? Suddenly this thing that they find in the, in the desert sands mentions something specifically from the scriptures. Well it changes the game. Suddenly the race is on. Everybody knows that what it says in the Bible can be corroborated outside the Bible. And since then until now, people have been discovering things that more and more and more dramatically point to the Bible as history, not just a book of stuff that might be true. Some of it's true. It goes on and on and on. But that was the first one. And that electrified Victorian society, and it really made a mad dash. All the colonial powers said, we want to get some of this treasure. Keep so in mind, it really kind of kicked
0: kick things off. Keep in mind, this black obelisk was put together by the Assyrians, and it pictures the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, who reigned from 858 to 824 BC. This is from Eric's book, Is Atheism Dead? My guest, Eric Metaxas. And it mentions, it shows King Jehu of Israel bowing down and paying tribute to him so keep in mind friends this is discovered near Mosul Iraq this isn't something the Israelis put in the dirt this is something the the Assyrians put in the dirt and it was discovered and it shows that Jehu certainly existed and it shows also that he was paying tribute to the Assyrian king because he didn't want to have his little tushy kicked By (laughs) the Assyrian king.
1: (laughs) Can you imagine being this
0: Irish clergyman
1: alone staring at this thing? And you realize like, uh uh-oh, that's King Jehu. Wait a minute. I got to tell somebody. This is like, honestly, these stories go on and on, example after example. But yeah, can you imagine
0: when he discovered that? Yeah. Yeah. And and you can still see that thing in the British Museum. Last time I was over there, there it was, sitting right out on display, Jehu kneeling down in front of this Assyrian king. Now, Eric, you got so many other archaeological discoveries in here. I want want to talk a little bit about the New Testament, though. We've been talking about the Old Testament here. What were some of the archaeological discoveries that you discovered that you put in this book, because they're in here, Is Atheism Dead?, from the New Testament that you found very intriguing? Okay. There's
1: one that I always hesitate to mention because it sounds like crazy town,
0: uh-huh.
1: but it's true. I mean, it's like, if somebody said, Hey, we discovered the, uh, Santa's workshop at the North pole. No, 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 really. <laughs> yeah. They discovered now that the key to all this, remember is that nobody knows this stuff that even when they discover this stuff, nobody reports on it. The secular narrative has just taken over, but it's a long story. I won't tell it here, but obviously I tell it in detail in the book, because if you don't know the details, you're going to kind of think, I don't know about mm-hmm. this, but in Nazareth, have you heard of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. Nazareth is nowhere'sville. Nothing happens in Nazareth. What Both good can different. come from Nazareth? One thing happened in Nazareth. Yeah. yeah. There was like a teenager named Mary. An angel spoke to her stuff happened, but other than that, nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, Bottom line is in 1880, some nuns from, Bel- from Belgium decide to go to Nazareth to build a convent, to serve Jesus in the town where he's supposed to have been born. They start excavating for their convent and they find the remains of an ancient church. They go, what's this? Well, long story short, like about a hundred and something years pass. In 2006, a British archeologist goes there uh, and says, hey, this is the Nazareth convent. They found some stuff underneath it. Let's see what's here. They find the remains of a Byzantine-era church. And then on top of that, they find the remains of a huge Crusader-era church. And But it was wiped out by the Muslims who came in the, 8th century, they came to that area and just like wiped out these churches. So for 1200 years, nobody finds anything. Then the nuns come there in 1880. So now in 2006, this is being excavated. And you think, why would they build these gigantic churches in a place like Nazareth? It's because if you were alive, when Jesus rose from the dead and whatever, every one of these places associated with him instantly becomes holy ground. Okay. So I found out there's a church over the place where Mary lived in Nazareth. The Catholics are onto this stuff, okay? But there's nothing else there. Well, they find at the base of these two gigantic churches, they find a first century dwelling. Well, why would Christians build gigantic churches, Mm -hmm. one on top of another, over a first century dwelling? Mm -hmm. Well, we get a clue from the fact that it was in Nazareth. We get another clue from a monk who traveled there before the Muslims destroyed these churches and explained that the home of Jesus, Mary and Joseph was between these two tombs down below in the crypt of these churches. I mean, it's the sort of thing, your hair stands on end and you realize that the book about what we're talking about, guess when It was published. It was published one year ago. Mm. One year, while I was writing, while I was finishing this book, I came upon this stuff. And the guy who discovered this stuff, it's almost like he's such a an archaeological genius that he's embarrassed to have discovered anything about Jesus. So he barely mentions that in the book. Like he sort of says, well, yeah, I guess so. But he's afraid to broadcast it. Is, so, is he but, Jewish, Eric? Or- the new, no, no. This is a British guy. Really? Hmm. But the point is that the academic world is so hostile to this stuff. Sure that it's like, well, we'll just kind of, we'll just write about the facts, but we don't want to talk about the implications. It is open and shut. It is, it's hilarious to me. Who could dream, who could dream they would find the home of Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I'm telling you folks, there's stuff like that. It's still hidden. God is revealing these things in the last days because as things get darker, the Lord says, I will raise up a standard in the midst of when the enemy comes in like a flood through, you know, Marxist, uh, uh, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, all the madness in the middle of it, more and more good news. Is Atheism Dead is my version uh, of what's interesting. Well,
0: there's a lot of good news in Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas. Eric, thanks so much for being on and writing this great book, sir. Always a pleasure. Thanks for what you do, Frank. That's Eric Metaxas. Check out his website, ericmetaxas.com. You can see where he'll be speaking. Pick up the book as well. Don't forget, I'll be at Northwest Missouri State University north of Kansas City this week, this Wednesday. See you then. God bless.